install this Monday evening. Uh, tonight, as always, I have my co-host, Peter Ray Allison. Good evening, everyone. And back again, and hopefully with less uh, technical difficulties, Anna Smith-Spark. Hi. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you've, a lot of people probably wouldn't have, uh, see, unless you were watching the last sort of travesty that was the podcast with Anna. Um, yeah, we had a lot of technical difficulties. So she's back again. And um, hopefully, no, 100%, it's going to be Thank you, Matt. Fam- Thank you. <laughs> famous last words. Uh, it's going to be fine. There's not going to be any technical issues this time around. So Anna, for uh, for everybody who uh, doesn't know who you are, who are you? What is your thing? What, what do you do? Oh, what am I doing? Um, being actually being amazed that I haven't that this is all working at the moment. <laughs> Astonished. <laughs> I haven't sat and watched Matt frantically plug things in and unplug things in square. Um, <laughs> my name's Anna Smith Spark. I write grimdark epic fantasy. I'm the author of the Empire of Just trilogy, The Court of Broken Knives, The Tower of Living Dying, and House of Sacrifice. And my new book came out just at the beginning of the month, which is the A Woman of the Sword. That's such that's a special edition cover, and then I have the that's the normal cover, Ooh. which is a sort of very personal. It's grim, dark fantasy, but from a one very kind of normal woman's perspective. So it's taking the kind of huge clash of empires, Titanic vast battles and dragons and sort of cataclysmic people living out their destiny that was going on in the in empires of dust and looking at that sort of events like that from the point of view of myself essentially a just a person caught up in it so is it is it is it based on you as a as a, you you as a person as the characters based on you or is it just you're as you mean you as an average jew the character is based on me. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. How was that? How was that? Writing yourself? Cathartic. <laughs> it was written during lockdown. So it was, yeah, it's kind of very, it was a very kind of, it is about balancing kind of caring responsibilities and children, caring for children and trying to find your own fulfillment in life and then man trying to manage trying and failing to manage all of that with a catastrophe unfolding around you so trying to keep people safe trying to keep yourself some kind of fulfillment and trying to just deal with the world slowly collapsing around you in a way you have no control over yeah okay yeah yeah i mean how did you balance all that like you mentioned your family life and Every, how did you manage like all that and writing at the same time? Badly. Um, Fair. Yeah, no, I mean, it was written kind of, I say it was written in lockdown, it was actually written kind of in the bits of lockdown that weren't as bad. Because during the bits of actual lockdown, lockdown, I didn't get any writing done because it was just that kind of, I was one of those people that had to just stop everything, drop everything creative because I had children to look after. Yeah. And yeah, so that was just kind of homeschooling and things and... So that had to be everything, just that had to be the centre of everything. And everything else just had to kind of stop or squeeze in around that. And then, yeah, so that some of that kind of experience is in the book, that kind of experience of just having to stop and 
not and give up things for yourself give up the things that are you and that kind of because it's I mean it was hugely important it was a mass like the most important thing you can possibly do in that kind of situation is trying to protect people more vulnerable from than you from the worst side effect worst consequences of it but it did mean having to give up a huge amount of myself and then yeah so I mean it was bizarre the lot when lockdown happened I think uh the house sacrifice was published in paperback I think actually around the same day as lockdown it was one of those Whoa. kind of yeah so it what should have been I mean I was really lucky because it had been published in hardback and in America before that so it was only the UK paperback release that was affected but what should have been you know the kind of final like you know it's all done here's the paperback out everything is done I've done this you know I've <laughs> I've scaled Everest. I've achieved the, this, you know, the, this the amazing dream of having written a fancy trilogy. And instead, it was like, oh yeah, no, I was promoting it. I promoted it. I did the one promotional thing for the paperback of House of Sacrifice at uh, Super Relaxed Fantasy Club, and it was the week before lockdown. And we all kind of, it was really bizarre because you'd be on the, I was on the tube going there, and there'd be people on the tube sort of putting on hand sanitizer like every five minutes on the tube. And you'd be like, why are you doing that? You're just sitting there on the tube and you put on more hand sanitizer. You know, the, the only thing you've touched since you last put on hand sanitizer is that bottle of hand sanitizer. And then we were all in a totally airless, dank basement. And it was this whole bizarre thing where everyone was like, kind of, are you hugging? I don't know. Are you hugging? Oh, let's hug. But we'll air kiss and then it'll be safe. And then, like, four days later or something, we were in lockdown and you look back and you think, that was insane. <laughs> it was like I don't even sort of. I, I, I don't know. If it's like I, I. It's not like I blocked it out, but it's just sort of. It just seems so long ago, um, and it just it does seem so unreal that for like effectively two years, we were. Uh, was it two years? Was it we started? Two years. Yeah, two, two years. Two years on and off. Yeah. It was yeah, years on and off. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I got a thing up the other day on my phone. Actually, Facebook kindly gave me a memory. So this day. <laughs> Last year, I was, can't mean last year, it must have been, no, this day two years ago, last week, I tweeted, I put out a big thing on Facebook saying, the bookshops have reopened. Oh, glorious day. Looking <laughs> <laughs> at it thinking, my God, that's just, like, <laughs> it, it does, it's really bizarre because it does feel like another world now. It feels like, at the time, it just felt like, and actually, I remember all that stuff at the time about, oh, this is the going away, it's going to be forever now. And there was all this really bizarre stuff, like, like oh, no one's going to go out anymore. And like, just really, really random stuff. Like, this is clearly the end of makeup and beauty counters. And this is the end of people going shopping and changing rooms in shops. And this is the end of people doing anything socially. And I guess, actually, Peter, if you and I sort of do stuff on cybersecurity stuff, yeah, the way people talk about it, the world is changed we will never ever go back to doing anything face to face anymore. And, yeah. and at the time it kind of seemed like maybe we won't, maybe this is it. Maybe my children will grow up and I have to explain one day there was this thing called a cinema, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a theatre, a public swimming pool. And they'd be like, nah. <laughs> and now you're like, what the hell? That just seems like another life. That was like, that's a, that was a nightmare. That doesn't seem real in the slightest. So, yeah, it didn't. It, it, it very much a once in a lifetime event, an experience that like no other. And fingers crossed, it will be like nothing again. Yes. 
Well, we're, but, I mean, we're I with it forever so... now, aren't we? It's not something that's just going to go away. It's just a thing we've dealt with. We dealt with it basically. We have like the um, we have vaccinations and and your top ups, which it won't stop us catching it, but it will, you know, give us uh, our bodies the defenses it needs to protect ourselves from the worst of it, and just less the impact it has upon our body, which you know, just basically makes you feel a bit rough for a few days, pretty rough, but it's not going to kill you, mm. thankfully. But, I mean, I remember lockdown. And the thing I remember most is Joe Wicks. Doing Joe Wicks with the kids every morning was torture. <laughs> What's Joe Wicks? You didn't do Joe Wicks, Matt. What's Joe Wicks? That exercise guy, every morning, 9 o'clock, he'd have us jumping up and down in our living room um, on YouTube. Oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> there you go. See, I'm one, I'm one of those people who, because I I didn't lockdown. I I you know I it did get a bit sort of kind of boring that we couldn't go out, and I love going to the cinema. Like really enjoy going to the cinema, so that really got to me. And like I don't go out drinking as much in my in my older age. I don't go out drinking as much and stuff, so it didn't really affect me too much because I was I've got a lot of nerdy stuff I do in the house and things like that. But I. I kind of liked it in certain ways because a lot of people who I didn't talk to um, regularly, we started talking a lot more. We started like, there's a lot more group chats and things going on. A lot of people trying to do stuff because everybody was in the same place and couldn't go out and couldn't, didn't have the excuse of, oh man, we can't, we can't play those games or we can't do that. And I was like, ah, I've got no excuses now. So <laughs> I was kind of, kind of enjoying it kind of in a way because, you know, a lot of people, you know, we're playing games with me. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, what I found was especially is I really missed meeting people in person. Yeah, yeah. And like going to conventions, and like going to places like Edge. I mean, I was gutted when Edge was cancelled because I was looking forward to seeing all the all the writers and authors there. But then, nope. Yeah. But yeah, well, I mean, we say like the. Uh, uh, Woman of the Soul was kind of based on your experiences. How did you kind of translate uh, like the, a global pandemic into your fantasy world? And I've been thinking about this sort of, not the pandemic, obviously, but I've been sort of thinking about these kind of stories before anyway. So when, when I was writing The House of Sacrifice, obviously, I mean, I was hugely, hugely sort of invested in Marath's story and Thalia's story and Tobias and Orhan. But if you notice, there's sort of, sort of stuff I weave in more and more in that about just kind of little bits about the daily life of the people in Marath's army particularly. So I got, because I was really got more and more interested in thinking about these people who are just kind of there because it's it's their life. It's just, you know, they're soldiers. They've been fighting for years now. By the time the House of Sacrifice ends, I think that they have been fighting for three or four years I think so um and they've got you know this is a massive army it's got a massive load of camp followers and the camp followers have got camp followers I mean if you look at sort of big accounts of you know really big like Alexander's army which is obviously so Marath I mean obviously Marath is based on Alexander the campaigns of Alexander so you have this kind of basically this huge court just traveling around through Asia Alexander he, I mean he never 
he leaves Macedonia and until um, after that he basically doesn't have a home he's living continually on campaign everything is going on in campaign or temporary they stop in a city or a palace and he'll set up there for a while but everything has just happened his you have this whole society operating around the army so the army's marching the soldiers a lot of them would have picked up women children the women would have had children you know have children growing up in the army camp who you know that that's their life that's the only thing they've ever done you have people who are you know you have people there to work to provide goods and equipment and services to people who are providing goods and equipment and services to the women who are attached to the soldiers you've got that kind of level of an entire sort of basically a city on the move following with the army so you've got people whose lives are invested in this and i mean another thing that i'm really something a book that's a story that obsesses me and that I draw on really heavily for Woman of the Sword and for stuff at the end of The House of Sacrifice is uh, Mother Courage. I saw I saw Mother Courage, Brett's Mother Courage. I saw Fiona Shaw as Mother Courage, which is astonishing. And again, that story, that's originally based on a book called Simpl- Simplissimus, which is a seri- book, so sort of picaresque book about people in the Thirty Years' War. And again, you know, that's, it literally was the Thirty Years' War. It's not kind of continual. It's not sort of World War Two style carnage for thirty years, but it is a war that, is, that goes on continually in Germany for thirty years. It totally dominates the life experience and the entire socio-economic situation of Central Europe for thirty years. A mother courage is someone whose life is she makes her money traveling around selling stuff to soldiers she she's with the army her entire economic and personal identity is totally bound up with being attached to this they aren't being being invested in with war basically and it consumes her in the end but that notion of people who are just sort of you know this is their life this is their job and again it's that thing that became to began to really obsess me writing the more I was writing Empires of Dust about the people who did this stuff. So this kind of the soldiers who are committing these atrocities. And I mean, they all the stuff that's most of the atrocities that are carried out in Empires of Dust were based on exaggerated versions of real historical things. I mean, you know, you look at like the Mongol sort of conquest of the entire, <laughs> the entire of Eurasia. And, you know, they are obliterating entire cities. Tamerlane did genuinely historically as far as as far as we can tell make piles of human heads outside his cities after we take them and people are just doing this i mean there's that really really interesting little tiny bit that's never explored in the force awakens when you get that little bit the beginning with finn before he's finn when he's just one of the stars just one of the stormtroopers and there's that little little bit where he's just this is no, this is just what he does. This is his life. His friends, his, no, this is just what he does. And that kind of exploring that is something that really, really interests, interests me and is something I got really, really into thinking about. So I was thinking anyway about the kind of daily lives of people in this sort of huge, epic total war situations. There, you know, we often read about there's a lot of there's more and more history which is looking at the lived experience of people who were just very very ordinary people 
going back, I mean, obviously, at 30 years war, you can begin to get letters and diaries and accounts written by people who were just very, very normal people, not commanders, not aristocrats, not people who were kind of knew what was going on, but people who are just sort of caught up in this. And then obviously later wars, you get more and more stuff. And that kind of historical trying to look at just people's experiences. There's a wonderful, amazing book I've got called 1864, which is looking at letters and diary accounts of the Second Danish-Prussian War, which was an absolute disaster. The, the um, Denmark basically decided that they could totally take Prussia, which... <laughs> <laughs> what a mistake of a maker. Yeah. And they could t- clearly totally take Prussia, because if the Prussians tried to invade them, they had the Danver- Danverk, which was um, basically like their equivalent of Offa's Dyke. Okay. Yeah, they had basically a prehistoric um, sort of ditch ditch and trench fortification oh. that clearly would stop the Prussians. <laughs> so okay. They anti- deliberately antagonised the Prussians, and the Prussian war music machine is like, it's a ditch. <laughs> yes, the, but, the great military strategy of we'll dig a really deep hole. Yes, yes, and yes, and the, the Prussians just go in with their howitzers, and it's 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 this kind of, it is yeah it's this kind of but it's actually one of the first it's actually more than possibly more than the first war it's basically the first example of massive heavy artillery kind of modern warfare and there are a lot of it's one of it's one of the first wars you have a lot of accounts of both sides from just the foot just the the foot soldiers so there's amazing account there's a wonderful book i've got which is accounts of letters and diaries from both sides and you get these recurring there's all sort of recurring stuff they're talking about writing about this very very strange stuff about how after a huge prussian bombardment had finished a lark started singing and that occurs in multiple diary and letters so it's that kind of lived experience of war and the kind of and just came that was something i've been thinking about anyway so i've been thinking about writing um an account something that was much more like that it's amazing writing about kings and you know people of great power marath and thalia and orhan who have all got power and knowledge and can move events around and are responsible for the lives and deaths of thousands but it is really fascinating just looking at the people who were just caught up in it the people what what our lives would be like if we were caught if this just happened yeah do that so shift anyway. Yeah. Do that shift in perspective. Happened. Um because you couldn't go in from like the kings and heroes to the foot soldiers and the people caught up in it. Did that shift in perspective, you know, influence how you approach the writing? Uh probably, yes. I mean it's really it is incredibly raw because it was then so it was then this was something it was all in my head and I was thinking about it and also I mean so Empires of Dust is based around it's kind of modeled on the Iliad and the Anabasis of Alexander and obviously Alexander himself consciously modeled himself on Achilles so it is that kind of huge heroic that sort of you know the story of sort of this great titanic hero figure and then I was also thinking much started thinking also about um Greek tragedy the kind of the much more domestic so things like the Antigone the stories which are about 
the women caught up in this, the stories about the kind of personal. So Antigone is a story, a woman who has basically has to choose between burying her brother and live and getting she has to choose between her fiance and her and burying her brother and sort of therefore, you know, doing her, her responsibility to her brother who's dead, but she has to bury him. Or to her husband, her fiance and his family. So it's about those kind of very personal choices we have to make about that we all have about, you know, being torn by the different responsibilities we might have and the different people in our lives and the kind of different importances we place on. And particularly, I mean, obviously, as soon as you start getting into people who are in relationships and in laws and that sort of stuff, the whole horrible mess of that kind of those kind of relationships. So and those kind of very personal. So the Antigone is is after a war. Her father, her brother is a traitor to the city that she's about to marry into the royal family of. It's all kind of, you know, again, it's that kind of horrible conflation of massive epic events, war and sieges and the absolute personal so I was thinking about all of that stuff anyway and then Covid happened and just the kind of in this when I then had the space to write the rawness of one thinking in those much more personal terms I mean Marith and Thalia are very personal to me but their experiences are so far (laughs) it is the kind of it's a sort of dream fantasy well as this was yeah, this was that kind of raw, a lot of it, it's about women and children and just how you deal with those kind of, the rawness of trying to deal with all of that, the rawness of of having given up, completely having to give up my writing at that point. And as we said, when people were talking about, like, oh, this might be forever, that kind of sense of, like, I'm just, <laughs> like, when people are talking about, well, maybe schools can just be online permanently now, and there's me thinking, like, well, that's it for me, isn't it? That's just, you know, <laughs> that's kind of that's just it and um just that so that incredibly raw painful sense of um yeah being locked in a house not trying to suddenly having to homeschool children and I'm I'm used I'm you know there's lots of I remember trying to teach two different primary school math lessons at the same time one time and just this sense of like trying to teach them to and trying to teach long division and I have never got long division myself and just staring at this video and this teacher saying like this video with this person just trying to explain it and me just I don't understand a word of this and I'm trying to explain it to my daughter <laughs> and you know eventually she's gonna have to do a GCSE in this stuff not now but you know eventually she's gonna have to do a GCSE in this stuff and I appear to be entirely responsible at this point. Oh, God. (laughs) At least you'll get a very good history. At least you would have got a very good history. um, A very good history. Yeah, well, yes, anybody who's only responsible. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, certain things. But, yeah, just, and obviously, and then, yeah, I mean, she would have been, you know, and then she was like, yeah, mum, you're not my teacher. Just sort of. And the pressure of all of that, that kind of pressure cooker of like, just kind of, you know, I'm completely failing at this. And there's no, you know, I'm completely, completely failing at this. And all I can do is, I just want to cry right now. And that's not really very helpful for my daughter's entire future now being on the line. (laughs) (laughs) I've just given up everything. And obviously, it is really, really important. I give up everything because if I, you know, the temptation of saying just, well, look, you know, you guys just go and play Minecraft for nine hours and do some writing is huge. But I cannot do that because I will really regret it. Yeah. And, you know, 
it will be my fault in years to come when you have spent on nothing but playing Minecraft for six months. So clearly, I have, you know, I've got to be doing all this work, but I can't do it. And Jesus. And yeah, I mean, actually, and also I was, I could through the whole, until they started, until my parents got vaccinated, every moment of my day, I was going around and overlaying just my what I could see was an image of me standing outside hospital with my mum in intensive care and I could just see that I could see mm. and it would be my fault somehow you know I'd have gone round and broken the rules and gone into her house to see her for 10 minutes and she and I'd given her COVID and she'd die and I could see that like a sort of like one of those kind of you know special magic glass special IT glasses all the time for the about probably the first year until until they got the vaccines rolled out so yeah trying to live like that continually and again not being like you know if the children are like why can't we see grandma and trying to be like no because if we see grandma she'll die and it will all be my fault (laughs) (laughs) wow (laughs) so yes all of that was just you know the pressure cooker of all of that just the kind of rawness of so it it, woman of the sword is incredibly raw book and actually a lot of it is about kind of yeah helplessness and hopelessness and fear and but actually so I mean there's all the kind of this sort of weird stuff where people are marching at one point we've got soldiers marching around and they literally don't know why they get where they're going or why which was I'm kind of assuming I'll get I've had some amazing reviews so far but I'm assuming I'll get some reviews saying like just what you know they're just there's no plot they're just kind of you know they just march at one point they march for days and days in one direction and then one morning they're just told actually they're marching in totally different direction and they're basically just packing up and going back the way they came and they never know why any of that happens there's little tiny hints in the background that they kind of overhear people having little whispered conversations but that sense of absolute helplessness that you know you they're soldiers they can't say no well, they can't say we're not doing this until someone's explained it. It's not the reason then, why it's what to do and die. Yes, yeah. And that feeling of just absolute, you know, this is totally beyond your control. Whatever is going to happen tomorrow. I mean, again, it obsesses me. Kind of things like the Thirty Years' War or the, the wars of the Alexander's successors and things, the way people just change sides all the time. And you just wonder what on earth the, the kind of soldiers in that you just kind of i was i was thinking about this the other day actually and i forgot how how much you were into your history and i'm just listening to all of this and going oh my god i could talk about this forever you know talking about the sledswick holstein wars and stuff and i was like oh i was like well i think the danes they they obviously kind of thought well we won the first war maybe we could do it a second time and then obviously Prussia at that time went yeah well we kind of got our shit together and then and we proceeded to beat everybody uh in in pretty short succession because it's like it's like the Danes then the Austrians then the French yeah, pretty quickly yeah, everybody, with, yeah. pretty much um but uh yeah I was thinking I was just, about I mean, it's, yeah but this thing about you know this thing about just not you know imagine just working imagine like you know you work for tesco's and then someone turns up and says like you know you've spent like the last five years trying to make everyone shop at tesco's well now as from tomorrow actually test we're making everyone shop at your, your whole job is to make everyone not work at tesco's and you're like what yeah i was, I was you know, that about- kind of 
shifts. Yeah, I was thinking just, about you know... that all the time. Not all the time. I was thinking about that the other day. I can't even remember what I was watching, but it was just... Oh, yeah, so that was it. I, w- I was watching a documentary about um, Edward um, um, Bruce's invasion of Ireland. And that's, it's an invasion they don't really talk about because this, they, they kind of didn't do anything. <laughs> they they kind of came in, they kind of beat a few English armies and then um, caused a lot of famine and, and stuff like that and then had to leave. And it sort of kind of shattered over because obviously Robert the Bruce big sort of kind of Scottish hero and stuff like that. And uh it was it was just sort of like you know a lot of people in Ireland you know would take their side and then would switch sides and then would just sort of kind of they would be told that by the way this guy's your high king now and it's like yeah but this other guy was the, it was like five minutes ago and I was just saying like it was a horrible time to be up you know be alive because you were literally just fucked both all ways it didn't matter what side you were on you were literally if you were a peasant uh or you were a soldier yeah you know it was just a grim time to live you know you were just gonna and i was thinking about it's like i'm so glad i don't i didn't live in that time because <laughs> it, it, it would literally have been you know you're, you do as you're told or you die and even if you do if you're told you'll probably die but you know that's just the way it is and yes you have to accept it and i was like that's grim that's so grim <laughs> that's okay yeah, i'm so the, lucky the really interesting thing is the way people yeah so yeah there's kind of bizarre you know it is just chaos it's like i mean you try and read accounts of what the 30 why the 30 years war was being thought and people are like you read all these last accounts and they just come down to we haven't got a clue no one's got a clue why it just carried on and then you read this you know this bizarre stuff where you know sort of someone they lose 50 percent of their troops to a plague outbreak and then they lose 25% of the survivors to famine. And then they lose a battle and they're left with like five troops, sort of them and their six mates, legging it through a bog in the pouring rain. And then you're like, six months later, they're like, and they've raised another army. You're like, yeah, well, it's what? like you think you think about the the you think about the Roman civil wars and the amount of or no, just Roman general, and you think about the amount of armies uh, they went through, especially like yeah. against Hannibal or against the and they were they were perpetually just like and then they went here and they raised a new army, and I was just like, <laughs> how does that happen? Like they just literally just turn up and go. By the way, we're gonna this is a new legion over here. We just built these guys, and it's like what. Where did all these people come from, especially back in the day when population densities weren't as much and stuff? And it was just, it's mad. And you were talking about Temujin, um, Genghis Khan and stuff. He had a massive effect on um, the population of the earth. I think he, I can't remember the exact stat on it. I think he like killed 60 million people. And at that time, it was like 11% of the earth's population he killed. Yeah, loads of stuff. People trying to sort, trying, trying to work out how many, yeah, what, what the total casualties were. And they, yeah, it is insane. And actually, I mean, people, and actually people have that image of Central Asia as just um, barren and desert, which is actually, I mean, so so lost in Empires of Dust, it is this kind of absurd city in an impenetrable desert. And I remember someone saying to me, like, it doesn't really seem to have a water supply. It's like, well, no, that's not the point, is it? It's like, you know, it's that fantasy, it's that Orientalist fantasy that in Europe we have of these absurd Silk Road cities that are, you know, richer and huger and more beautiful and more decadent and than anything in, that people in Europe could possibly have imagined at that time. And apparently they're just stuck out in the desert because now the sense we have now is, you know, you see those sort of pictures of a lot of Central Asia and it is just barren desert. 
actually had the most amazing irrigation systems. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, then yeah. they've got destroyed, and that's why it's all desert now. It wasn't desert. It had incredible, huge irrigation systems and huge knowledge, engineering knowledge of how and hydraulic knowledge, and that was all destroyed. Well, so if you think, um, it's like if you think of Egypt, if you really ask anybody sort of like what, if they thought of Egypt, you think pyramids and you think desert. You don't really think much else, maybe the Nile, but you sort of, you read all the historical things and obviously um, the, the Egypt uh, was the breadbasket of um, of Rome. And so it's sort of like they obviously, you're thinking, well, the breadbasket, well, it's all desert. Why would it be all desert? But it was, wasn't because of the irrigation system, the advanced irrigation systems they had. So all of the sort of kind of main grain and stuff came from Egypt. And you don't, the people don't think about that. It's, uh, it's like, it's just, it's desert. Well, it wasn't always like that. It wasn't always like that. Yeah, I mean, when you kind of first building like the the world of a woman with a sword, where did you start? I mean, did you plan it all out in advance, or was it just sort of a stream of consciousness? It was a stream of consciousness. So it's the same world. It's 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 the same world as Empires of Dust. I mean, you can read it as a coda to Empires of Dust. You can see there are characters who in are in the background who are the same character who are the same. It's not got any of the big characters in Empires of Dust in it, they're, they're done. So you can read it as a coda. You don't need to have at all, I keep stressing this to people because I'm terrified people are like, oh, clearly I can't read it because you don't need to have any knowledge. There are little tiny, little references and in-jokes, which if you read Empires of Dust, you might well get. But, and part of it actually also was slightly reframing that world. So again, the way that store, so quickly stories change or those kind of, I mean, you sort of those sort of before you've got things written down, and you've, before you've got official forms of communication, the kind of way that everything's rumour. So you get kind of oh, that's fascinating stuff in kind of even about stuff like the Wars of the Roses, where no one seems to be quite sure like what's going on. That's and you a get complicated all these different, war. That's a complicated yes, war. <laughs> but you get all these different accounts of you know what what's happened or all that kind of uncertainty over whether someone's actually dead or alive, and that sort of. So there's there's sort of little bits in that where you can read into kind of, oh, this is a totally misremembered bit of stuff from that's actually happened in Empires of Dust. But this is a, this is another lot of people totally misremembering that and re retelling it in a totally different way. And they've got the name slightly wrong also. But you don't need to know any of that stuff. But no, it was just, it just came pouring out as a kind of just me writing out a lot of my feelings about yeah a lot of my frustration and pain and fear at the time um i guess there's sort of i mean there's passages where i'm describing beautiful countryside and things which i think is probably a sort of desperate attempt to get out of my house and sort of but it's just yeah no it came out and then i could just see it again it it was like the way i was writing empires of dust where i didn't know i had this woman who a version of her had been in a short story I'd written several years before, but she was sort of formed in my head. The what's now what's chapter two of Order and the Sword is what it began with, with her in this beautiful English landscape, and then her life was sort of unfolding, and then the, I could get I could see the whole thing in her arc. But she is she is me exploring a lot of the tensions. I was feeling at the time and the pressures at the time and also the tensions I feel about the world I created in Empires of Dust so she is a 
she's talking about the toxic masculinity that's in Empires of Dust and she's she's incredibly attracted to it but also fears it she kind of so I was sort of um I mean when I sort of talk about how Empires of Dust is a, is the world it is my psyche it is the world I would want to live in in some way which, <laughs> which, <laughs> but, you know I wrote every scene in that I wrote it's a kind of you know it's a it is fantasy it is you know me projecting everything that I kind of dream about is you know why, why do we no one reads we all read if we if you read fantasy and love fantasy or you watch fantasy films or you play sort of immersive fantasy computer games you know it, it is that fantasy of being that you're the fantasy of fighting a dragon or kind of you know seeing seeing those huge armies clash leading huge armies riding out you know sort of leading the horse leading the charge of horses and all of that that that's why we read the books and play the games and watch the films it's because we kind of fantasize about being there and being part of that and it is amazing and that kind of you know there's one seeing those amazing things and seeing those huge battles but then of course as we were saying earlier you know thank god we live mm. these very dull suburban lives yeah i just don't think how, how terrifying it would have been <laughs> yes just to be exactly. especially in the front line or sort of second lines being forced into these things and just literally i i just you can't fathom how scary it must have been yeah it must have been unbelievable and yet it is something um, that we all fantasize about and yet also and also interesting i mean you know the aristocracy the nobles are doing this the experience of being one of the kind of co-opted peasants or slightly later when you do have these kind of recruited armies you are presumably part of the reason by the time you know by the time the 30 years war has been going for quite a while or by the time the roman civil war has been going for a while one of the reasons you can form a very an army very get up another army very easily is because it's one of the few ways you can actually feed your family yeah, yeah. by this point so it's that you are desperate you you know someone's offering you a uniform some kind of pathetic food ration and a small amount of money and potential the potential for more if you win i mean that you're reduced to that as rather like today being reduced to cleaning toilets or something you know it's not you're not doing it out of love but you're doing it because it's better than it means you can feed your children yeah but the out but you know the nobles seem to be enjoying this you know people talk about remember rj barker talking about all oh, the absolute it must have been you know being part of a medieval cavalry charge must have been absolutely terrifying well actually it probably wasn't because you know the big nobles are doing this again and again and again the kind of you know if you go back to alexander and his nobles his companions they're doing this stuff you know they keep doing this their whole lives revolve around having he- owning big war horses and, and he training. wasn't shy of a cavalry charge was alexander <laughs> no he was not shy of a cavalry charge. <laughs> no. yeah. it was yeah. something that people you know this is medieval society is based around war archaic greek society and then alexander macedonian society is based around war it's not it must have been terrifying and awful for some of the people involved but you know if all it is is awful i guess society, we're... the men the, the the very powerful men in society who keep doing it would 
mm. you'd assume at some point stop doing it because it's kind of yes it self-replicates but it's also clearly the very high nobility are getting a hell of a lot out of it because they keep doing it for generations so and they, yeah they keep doing it repeatedly and almost every opportunity <laughs> and it's you know when people talk about this sort of you know proving you're a man and proving your masculinity and your prowess and praising someone you know pray the most praiseworthy thing a man can do is be great in war i mean either we say they're all lying and they're all actually secretly terrified or they are genuinely all enjoying no they are genuinely this is a, these are societies where people are genuinely enjoying this stuff the Iliad, things like the iliad are not poems about war being bad the things like the um you know the Godothin, the which is a poem I draw on a lot um or kind of you know the Norse sagas these are not these are not stories and poems about war being bad they are sell they are talking about how dying in war is glorious but there's no it's not as simple as this is not in fact this is just terrifying and this is not this is a bad thing to be involved in there is a clearly I think there's a different mentality back now. We appreciate it. We see it for what it is. And we've seen, you know, we we, we can physically see it. Um, oh, everybody. Yeah, it's all fine. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, we can't no. again. <laughs> um, but, like, we've got a different mentality because we've seen, we, we can read about it quite extensively. We can see footage of these, these horrible things. We've got, you know, um tales about it back in the day i think it you know there was it could be romanticized and you know justified in a certain way whereas now you can't really you can romanticize it but then there's all of this footage there's 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 physical photographs and things to show people how horrible war is well back in the day they could say well one because religion is a big thing so well you know if you die you're going to go to heaven or you're going to go to you're going to go to because you'd have seen battlefields. I mean, yes, people sort of talk about, you know, the sort of the civil, the American Civil War is the first war that civilians who aren't on the front line are seeing very clear photographs of what's going on and having journalistic accounts of what's going on very, very immediately. But I mean, you'd have seen kind of, you'd have seen battlefields. You'd have yeah, seen well, there's actually, this, there's a wonderful, wonderful line in Mary Renault. Um, the Mary Reno's book, uh, Far From Heaven, which is the first of her Alexander trilogy, which is about Alexander's childhood. And it runs up to the point where he is, it runs up to him before his father's death and him becoming king. And there's a wonderful bit where they're talk, um, they've just, so Philip has just swept down and sort of conquered the whole of Greece. And there's a bit where people sort of mothers sort of people are standing on the roadside watching a chain of women and children being dragged off back to slavery to slavery and to be sold as slaves and she has this wonderful caustic line where people are sort of saying look so so that's what happens you know that that's the pity of war the lesson is win and it's that kind of you know the lesson of pity the pity of war isn't don't fight the lesson of the pity of war is the love of God make sure that you're we're on the winning side and ideally that the battle takes place several hundred miles away and it's kind of and yeah so I kind of it's just I don't know I get I mean it, a lot of I have no doubt again it's that kind of wish for it's that kind of I don't know 
I have no I, doubt. I don't know what would happen if it had came here. I'm, I have no oh, doubt there, there's fear, but I guess it depends on a lot of... There's a lot of things. I don't know. You get... Like, I, I, I don't think you could say anybody isn't scared when they go to the battle unless there's some sort of kind of... They've got something slightly tapped in their head that sort of... You know, and there are people like that who sort of, you know, do like that sort of thing. And I'm sure there are the noble class. There are people because obviously a lot of them, their genetics weren't exactly, um, you know, tip top. But, um, you know, I, I'm i sure there's a lot of... Sorry. I think there's also like so like, like the God-given right to rule. Like they feel that we are kind of, you know, descendants of the king. Therefore, we have the right to rule because... I have the king's blood flowing in my veins, therefore I am like a lord and um, master of all that surveys. And that kind of sheer single-minded blinkered hypocrisy. Uh. Yeah. So that so that was a very much so it's exploring some of that from the point of view of yes, yeah, so of soldiers who are frontline soldiers who are yeah, they're but th- this is their job. They've been invested, they're kind of this is their life, is being kind of yeah one in the rank soldier so yes that that sort of terror and the knowledge that at any moment they could die the knowledge the uncertainty you know what what are they fighting for they don't really know why they're doing what they're doing they know that they're marching because their kings told them to march or they know their kings told them that once they've won that they need to win this battle but the you know they don't they're not privy to actually what's going on or the maneuvers or the kind of politicking and the, the tactics and the strategy and the big round plan it's that their lives totally depend on stuff that they don't know and will never know and have to be okay with not knowing. And yeah, they obviously they are frightened. They know they live with death constantly and they have to deal with that. But they also, you know, they, this is something they do. This is something that they are good at doing and get satisfaction from the fact that they are good at doing and I haven't invested in being good at because it is their, it's a big core part of their identity. So, yeah, so a lot of that. And then thinking about a woman in that situation was just became even more interesting because to write about a woman in a environment which is predominantly male just became more and more interesting. So, yeah, so it is, it's trying to explore all of that about those kind of issues about kind of, and yeah, it is very easy for in Empires of Dust, it's very easy to for Marith to talk about, you know, charging into battle and how much he enjoys battle and his comp and sort of because he's just, yeah, he has this absolute sense that what he's doing is in some way his destiny, he has this absolute sense of himself. He believe it's it's never clear, it's totally unclear to me whether he is genuinely this kind of incredibly super powerful and vulnerable figure or whether that's just something he believes about himself or even if it's or it's a myth that he doesn't believe but is projecting about himself but he has this sense whether it's true or not in the way alexander clearly did that there's something he's projecting something you know it's it is a game for him but it's not a game for the people in a woman with a sword in a way it in kind of in fact far beyond the way it's so in Empires of Dust, it's not a game for Tobias because he's the only non-special person. He's just a very ordinary bloke. He's a middle-aged mercenary, and he's not okay. He's not a king. He has no magical powers. He has no huge insights. But at the same time, you know, he's been there from the beginning. He's seen this stuff unfold. He's kind of he's close to these big 
huge characters. He's he's knows Marith very quite intimately. He he's bound up in the kind of the specialness of it. He's kind of you kind of know he's spoilers. You kind of know he's not going to die because you know he's he's kind of made special by the fact he's one of the big central characters. The people in the Woman and the Sword are they are the they are the pawns. They are just you know there is no there's no explanation for why stuff's happening to them. There's no I don't give you any context and explanation. So actually, I didn't need to build the world in the same way I need to build the world in Empires of Dust because the kind of machinations and the politics. I mean, there are points where I'm not quite clear why they're marching off for two weeks in one direction and then turn around and march back in the other. I know little hints of what's going on, but I didn't, I don't, I didn't kind of build the, I can't, and obviously I know what they are, but I don't know the details of it. It's all just kind of, I'm in their heads with this kind of that that sort of sense of chaos that this is a world they don't understand they can't control and then sort of they will be addressed by a powerful figure a king or a queen or a great general and that sense of thrill that sense of power that sense again why one of the reasons that we watch and read and play these games play fantasy is to have that sense of you know, the king striding up on his war cloak with his sword and he on his rearing white horse and he makes a great speech. And you do feel something. That's kind of yeah. partly you have that fantasy projection that you could be that, but also you just feel that thrill thrill of watching it. It's kind of and yeah, and how they so I'm writing about them feeling that, seeing that figure. Basically in the same way I see that figure when I'm watching one of the endless numbers of fancy films I watch. Yeah, well, uh, I've, got, I've got loads of questions, but um, we, we obviously, because we do D&D and stuff like that, and some of the big moments that everybody loves the most is that pre-battle speech writing point where they can write, they can say something, they could be epic, they can sort of talk, they can inspire, they can sort of kind of just, and you really feel it, get, you know, it really gets you going. You can, you can, you can like, if, with a good speech, my brother's quite good at them, you know, sort of, you know, you can really get into it. Mr. Uh, Mr. Allison over here did a, a great speech before his character was unceremoniously killed in, in the last... <laughs> but... I'm what I wanted. <laughs> so he had a great death speech and stuff, but it was just really those moments where you're just like, yeah, mm. you can sort of you can see how they can rouse people and they can sort of you know really inspire people to do things and stuff because it's just like you know I'm not sure if it's just inbuilt in human nature to want to be led or want to be sort of kind of inspired or something. I don't know what it is, but well, I'll also add that you know speech writing is a very specific skill you know p uh, politicians hire speech writers to write you know inspiring speeches that is like a genuine career choice i want to be a speech writer and because you know a good speech will rouse a, a country a bad speech is political suicide yeah and you can tell the difference between one that is from the heart and one that's just mm. being being read off in a sort of kind of, you know, monotone sort of way and stuff, if there's some sort of a kind of emotional attachment to it. Um, the other question I want to ask you, if what sort of era is your is your sort of um, canon set in? Is it uh, sort of early medieval? Is it sort of pike and shot? What sort of kind of era have you sort of kind of gone with? It's so, it's a kind of horrible hodgepodge. Um so we have That's kind. 
yes we have iron tech we have bronze and iron technology yeah basically because i i mean yeah it's this world, the world of Empires of Dust and A Woman of the Sword is a, is a kind of hodgepodge of all the things I like the most. So there's lots of stuff about art bronze because it's it's riffing on the Iliad. Yeah. And I mean, even, you know, bronze armour is kind of, it's hugely important. And all the stuff about the killing bronze in the Iliad is so important. So there's lots of stuff about bronze. But then we also do have iron. So it's kind of, it's probably, I sometimes think of it as kind of, yeah, it's sort of... Lead antiquity. Well, and I think it's, yeah, all kind of, yes, it's that sort of Dark Age Britain kind of, you know, it's that kind of, I kind of, it's partly kind of Bronze Age Greece, and it's partly kind of that sort of, yeah, late antiquity, the Romans have just left Britain, not Saxon, but that kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that sort of, what I still call the Dark Age, which I got told off terribly for calling <laughs> it, it's such an incredibly romantic, it is this intense, just such a romantic. Yeah, who told you off? Oh, just an academic saying no one should oh, use right. that. It's terribly, terribly, and it suggests they're all. But it's just they're all illiterate. But they mostly were illiterate, and I don't see what's wrong with them being illiterate anyway. But and literally, I mean, we know very little about. We do don't know very little about that period. It is a sort of. And that's why um, it's called the Dark Age, is because... That's why it was called the Dark Age, yeah. That's why it's called the Dark Age, because we don't know as much about it. You know a lot about sort of Roman era, because it's all right, but that period of time, with the, the shrinking of the Roman Empire and stuff, it just sort of... You don't get as much um, written um, uh, sources as you would before before and then after it. Yeah, it's sort of when people say, which suggests they're all really ignorant and, you know, they're all really stupid. Like, well, no... It doesn't. It suggests it's a period where you don't know much about things. And actually, the, the fact that you don't know much about things means you can take all kinds of really exciting speculation about how society might have operated. And sort of, you know, you can actually play around with possibilities. And, you know, it didn't talk about futures where it didn't have to go the way it did. And that sort of things. So I, 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 I think the term, the term that the Dark Ages in a world uh, that you can't pin down and say, oh, we know everything about it. You can only ever imagine it and dream it. I think I, li- I like it. I, I find it terribly romantic term because of that. But but yeah, anyway. But yeah, no, so it's that kind of period. It's not, we know it's a very low level of technology. It's kind of iron and, it's, yeah, it's iron and bronze and it's kind of very basic technology. So yeah, no, it's not sort of. But then a lot of the stuff, as I said, a lot of the stuff about the way people are living as camp followers and as kind of, as this huge army this sort of huge army that's just sort of moving around with its camp followers a lot of the stuff about that is drawn from um actually from stuff about the 30 years war and from because mother courage obsesses me and it's something that i want to write about and the kind of there's a, the really strong elements of mother courage in a woman the sword and also because i suspect life probably was pretty similar mm-hmm. the experience i imagine a camp follower in Alexander's army and a camp follower in the Thirty Years' War, it probably is a fairly similar experience. It's yeah. not kind of, it's not, obviously they've got different levels of technology, but ultimately it probably was a very, it probably was a fairly similar experience. Yeah, even down experience. to the weapons and stuff they would have used. Some uh, of the weapons, yes. You know, it's a, basically, they, they had the uh, phalangides uh, for the um, the phalangeteers, or the, the, the pikemen for um, uh Alexander's army and stuff, and then you had the you had the pikemen for uh, in the in the thirty thirty years war and stuff. So they are very similar. They would have had 
you know, obviously maybe steel, they would have steel crosses instead of um, bronze crosses, but, uh, you know, very, very similar. Mm. Very similar. Oh, yeah, and and both arms. I also so think about, so when I'm using magic and dragons and things, I actually also think about kind of those sort of that point in early modern and modern warfare where we begin that people suddenly have mass have armaments and they have mass bombardments for the first time i mean you get really bizarre there's extraordinary accounts in the napoleonic wars of people in their kind of they're not even wearing an armor and i know armor's not going to have any effect anyway but you know they're not even wearing armor they're just wearing a cloth coat mm. and they're lined up and they they're, t- they're lined up standing in formation getting shot up under cannon fire <laughs> yeah. for hours <laughs> dead, and it's, dead it's, and square it's the thing in napoleonic warfare is this you know just standing in formation while they're taking artillery fire and there's i can never really understand why i have no idea why they're doing it it's it just, it's, it's because of its efficiency with the fight that the, the it, whole formation is because you're you're lying the guns were so inaccurate um, that they had to sort of have them in mass rank so they could hit things. And it was just, uh, yeah, it's it's. Mad. If you think about it rationally, you say to someone, you know, I want you to just not wearing even any armour. And I know, again, like a tin hat isn't going to protect you, but still, you know, you in your hoodie, just go and stand there for three hours, absolutely rigid. You can't run away. You can't even dock while some blokes chuck cannonballs at you. I mean, yeah. yeah. And so I read about stuff like that and I try and imagine what it must have been like, you know, the experience of actually, so, I mean, in the Malazan books, there's stuff about that where, you know, the, the bridge burners are standing in formation and they're just being pounded with mage fire and with various mageries and they just stand there. And it's exactly the same. It's kind of just, you know, it's insane, but they're doing it. So there are little bits in the woman's story where people talk about, you know, where, you stood in formation under Dragonfire because because you were told to do it, and mm. you know you did your you did not break the line. You're you know you could say afterwards, no matter you did not break the line. I mean, there's an again coming back to the Second Danish-Prussian War. There's a television series that was made based on these accounts of people's experience of the battle, and it has this mesmerising scene where the Germans use their howitzers for the first time so you have the people have the, the danish army is camped defending is sort of camped and i think they're, they're in a, there's a town next to them and then at, in the middle of the night the prussians unleash this vast bombardment of howitzers which is like nothing and the way it's told in the television series certainly that the danish soldiers have no experience of this this is not like anything they've ever seen before and so they look up and the sky is silver with shot. And, it, you know, it's exquisite. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. It's like the sky is full of silver fireworks. The whole sky is just lit up. And there's this silence and this incredible silver light. And then everything hit, all the mortars hit. And it's just absolute carnage. You just this vast deafening roar and everything exploding. But for a moment, the soldiers are just staring and it is... It yeah. is incredibly beautiful. The sky is silver with light. And then it's just utter desolation, devastation. And again, that kind of trying to imagine what that, you know, to see a dragon or to see to see a mage fire, you know, something that is just beautiful beyond 
in human comprehension you couldn't you know just to stop and stand and see a dragon coming towards you and you know and you can't not but feel you know your heart is just leaping with joy because it's the dragon and then it just consumes everything yeah (laughs) but you stood the line you held the line because i mean your writing really captures that i mean it's like the very lyrical quality to your writing it's like it's almost like reading poetry and it's like um, I think um, like it's like Leonard Cohen meets um, Joyce or something like that, um, and it's yeah, it's really it's really beautiful. It's like literally, you I feel like I'm reading like a poetry or. Uh, actually, I write the, it to Leonard. I do write listening to Leonard Cohen quite a lot, actually. Okay, that explains everything. <laughs> I do love that. I love Leonard Cohen. I love Leonard Cohen. But no, what you're saying about kind of the ca- catching that beauty in the most in atrocity beauty and atrocity is like yeah absolutely i can yeah because you really capture that kind of those moments of beauty and then sudden absolute devastation and horror occurs it, yeah it's that kind of it is this it's the kind of awe and the sublime it is that kind of moment where you know that kind of and that moment again that sort of being on the battlefield i mean i imagine it is it must be a sublime experience to be in that kind of carnage to be on that moment where you are killing and you are pretend any moment you are potentially you are on the point of death you know where you are absolutely on the walking on the knife blade where any moment you could be dead and you are yourself killing it does feel i mean i can that i have a sense that must be a profoundly sublime experience that must be one of those moments when you do feel you are on the edge of touching god because it must be an experience beyond most normal human comprehension Mm. that kind of that sort of yeah just that that moment i mean you know there are very few moments in your life when you reach and you are in that kind of transcending any kind of normal human state and i assume that is one of them so yeah yeah, no i do i think about it i think that i think about that kind of stuff quite a lot as well for some reason (laughs) it's always very I always find it quite insane that you have um, a set of wars leading from effectively American Civil War all the way up to World War One, and the the technology and the the ability to kill others in more gruesome ways was increasing, and yet we had World War One where they were still using um, Napoleonic tactics for all intents and purposes. Um, and yet they had so many wars that they could have learned from and didn't learn from. And they just sort of kind of just carried on as they were. And it was just, it's just mad. But it's just like, you know, it took them, the, the amount of casualties it took for them to realize it's like, okay, well, maybe this isn't the way to do things, you know, despite there being trench warfare in the American Civil War and there being machine guns effectively in the Franco-Prussian War, uh, you know, and, you know, Manez, you had uh, Gatling guns and things like that in the American Civil War as well and stuff. You had all these things, weapons that were getting more and more powerful, more and more destructive, artillery, Frank, the Russo-Japanese War and stuff, you know, all these things which pointed towards like well, war's getting a lot more destructive war's getting a lot more sort of you know nasty we need to sort of, you might want to learn from that and they kind of went nah <laughs> nah we're not going to do that i think it's difficult to conceive of it was i think it's difficult to sort of to really conceive of changing tactics you're in that kind of 
there's always that arms race between you know developing something that can kill more powerfully and developing something to protect you so you know sharper swords bigger armor sharper swords again you know that kind of but i think it just yeah you reach that point where it's difficult to kind of really conceptualize war changing it's difficult to kind of yeah i that, actually i get that actually i understand that and it's only because uh, it, it, and this is a really bad example, but I, this is me sort of kind of trying to understand it. But, you know, I play a lot of war games with my brother and you'll spend ages sort of kind of developing your, building your army based on a specific set of units and um, tactics and things like that. And then somebody will come along with something completely different. And instead of kind of going well i need to start a deal with that it's like well no i've got this thing that i i like i'm good with i i'm used to i understand how to do it and you don't want to change because you know it's change and you know you know you you feel like you're good with this thing and then you get wiped out and all it takes is it's it takes a couple of losses before you realize shit shit, yeah yeah maybe i do need to change my the way how things happen and stuff and again but again change is scary for you know very much the military mindset where it's kind of a very structured way of thinking about things people Mm. do tend to double down on mistakes yeah yeah yeah. the kind of classic tragedy of looking at disasters is often that people start you do something and it produces a bad outcome but your solution is to think well i obviously didn't do it hard enough or well enough so i shall do it again Mm. harder and of course what you're actually doing is then ramping up the negative effects but then you're like oh shit it's still not working so i need to do it for the third time really hard and you're actually rather than and it is that kind of that it's that i think yeah it's that sort of assumption that it must everyone's always told you it works so if it's not working it's not working because you're not doing it you're not applying it well enough yeah yeah yeah, yeah, i mean that's actually liz truss is still making that argument isn't she She's still yes. saying that, yeah, she's not, she's still just going that the problem was she didn't do it. If she'd only gone in even harder, oh God. we'd all be better off now. It's that, because it, the only reason, the only way she can articulate to herself it didn't work was that she didn't do it enough. And if she'd just done it It's pride. That's pride. But pride's, pride's a massive uh, Pride's a massive thing, I think. In And this is one thing that I sort of always think about it's like so people are so afraid of being told they're wrong it affect you know it doesn't matter in 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 that in your own life you know somebody tells you you're wrong about something you always get slightly offended and it takes you a while when you realize okay maybe i was wrong uh and then it takes you a while to sort of kind of realize and then you sort of kind of do it you get over it but being told you're wrong, being told that something is wrong is a big sort of oh it's not if I don't want to be wrong and and therefore you'll do yeah. things you'll carry on and you'll double down on mistakes yeah. people on, on arguments and everything because it's better to be wrong and sort of you know right in your own brain than to actually do the right thing and accept fault. and also to be fair and also from politically speaking being seen to be wrong exactly and that's it so it's better it was it's and better the, to and, sort and of take the, the culture admitting be wrong yeah, admitting be wrong would be essentially it's essentially political suicide at this current state of mind, which is really bad because you know things change. You know, one strategy, one tactic, one solution is not a constant. You have to come up with a new solution to meet an ever-changing problem. Well, see, that's where you get sort of, and I've I've always found this. It's like I understand, you know, 
you get politicians and they'll do one thing and then they'll change their mind and then the other party automatic turns around oh you're flip-flopping look whoa look at your day and it's like yeah well would you rather that they did the th- carried on doing the thing that they did and see that's where that gives it reinforces the idea that they shouldn't change their mind because if they do the other side's just gonna go whoa you're idiots you're flip-flopping and stuff and it's just like right i understand if you're making loads of mistakes and you're having to keep on going back on them that's a bad thing but if you do you make a mistake and you change your mind and go like fine you were right there shouldn't this whole like the way you've done something wrong and we're gonna we're gonna carry on it just reinforces the wrong sort of behaviors in my brain and it's the same with everything people are so worried about being wrong or being mocked and sort of thing for being wrong that they will literally just go down a route because it's better to be sort of you know solid with what you believe than actually right ideological ideological basically yeah yeah and it's just you know and it's all because um, you're you're fear like I, I i try personally i you know i i like most people i don't like being wrong but i try to accept it if somebody tells me i'm wrong and they can prove you know there's a good evidence that i am wrong i'll instead of just kind of trying to fight it i'll go right you know what you're right i'm wrong and it hurts and it's annoying and you feel scundered but it's better to accept it and try and make things better than to carry on down that route and just really be embarrassed later on down the line when history tells you that you're a fucking moron for carrying on that and, and to be honest truth is a fucking moron <laughs> and that and that is how she's going to be seen in history and if anyone complains about that yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, back onto more pleasant matters. You know the horrors, the horrific horrors of war. What's more pleasant? Um, but yeah, I mean, where where do you go from here? We're, you know, a woman Assad is out now. Where do you go from here? I mean, would you do a historic? Some... Would you do a historic thing? Would you do something? Uh-huh. Would you do a historic one like Ramage or or Sharp or like? Hornblower or something. I've thought about it. I have thought oh. about it. There's a lot of see. There's a huge amount of work involved. More because I mean, you, obviously you can't just go off in a kind of it's a hodgepodge. I decided to stick some stuff about bronze in because even though they're using iron for some reason, they're also using bronze. Even though that would be really stupid because I just wanted to talk about them using. I, you know, it's you can't. Fantasy, you can get away with it. History, people kind of go, ah, oh, you'll think you'll find that in this area and stuff. History, history nerds will be all over you. Whereas in fantasy, yes, you can kind of yes, get away with it. Yes, yes. And I, I mean, in fantasy, I get really um, kind of when people talk about things like it's something being inauthentic in fantasy. It's just I had this, um, you know, that whole thing about well, they wouldn't be drinking tea or they wouldn't be eating potatoes, and you're like, there wouldn't be dragons well, flying. Wouldn't be fighting a dragon either. So, <laughs> you know, come on, and you know there are. And actually, I mean, the, the tea thing and things is um, that kind of, you know, it's so rooted in writing about war, the kind of, you know, the, again, going back to the First first World War, kind of, you know, First World War soldiers in the trenches with their roll-up and their cup of tea. In Britain, anyway, it's so absolutely central to the way we talk about war and particularly kind of common soldiers in war. You know, you can see them in the rain, in their trench, they're black adder, they're in the rain in the trench with their roll-up and their little tin mug of tea. And the roll-up and the tin mug of tea are the only two things they've got that are keeping them sane. And it's the only comfort they've got. And that's such a huge part of writing about war that you have to have lots and lots of soldiers drinking tea because it's, you know, it's not, it's not about, 
yes, you're writing a medieval world, but you're also writing about a culture sort of, if a British writer, you're writing about British narratives about war. And tea is so totally embedded in that. <laughs> and, obviously, and you can't do that kind of thing in um, in fantasy. You can't have that kind of... So it would be a t- I've thought about it because I do love history and I love historical novels. But actually, where I'm going from here now at the moment is um, I have another new book out in September. Oh, wow. This year. Yeah. Wow. Which has been amazing. So um, that was written... So that's called A Sword of Bronze and Ashes. And that is it's kind of it's been the book tags it as a was it a dark uh, folk horror fantasy Ooh. from the green of grim dark so that's um that yeah it's kind of it's a second world fantasy but it is it's folk horror fantasy in a sec, in a kind of epic fantasy second world so it's actually that came out of me reading, rereading stuff like The Weird Zone of Brisinger Men and The Dark is Rising during lockdown. Oh, yeah. Because those are some of my comfort books. And those, you know, those classic stories of children with adult caregivers or protectors. And basically, they have to go from A to B. And in fact, it's usually a landscape that they know well. They're traveling through, usually somewhere that a place that they live or are staying. But it's made totally strange by the magic coming out of it. So I mean, the Weirdstone of Brisingham, and they're on Audley Edge, and by this, and they know Audley Edge well. But suddenly, it's completely changed. Suddenly, all its secrets are revealed, and the kind of folk magic that's there under the surface appears to them. So it's taking that narrative trope, but writing it from the point of view of the adult caregiver, and it's about you know what trying to keep trying to keep a mother trying to keep her children safe and also you know what does she tell what does she conceal that and the kind of knowing that sort of sense of you know her children can fight the dark it's much more good against evil than the stuff I've written previously it's very it is a kind of again it it came out of lockdown it came out of Black Lives Matter it came out of me too it came out of that point where you were like you know actually kind of you know there is evil in the world and there is some good in the world and it is you know there are things it is definitely worth fighting for and it is worth dying for and it is worth but that point when you're kind of that came from thinking about and again thinking about you know watching my children grow up a bit now and again watching them grow grow up in lockdown and after lockdown and that kind of what do I want for my daughter I want her to you know I want her to be I wanted to be the chosen one. I wanted to be, you know, good fighting against evil. I want, you know, that kind of, you know, what do we all want for our children? We want them to be an amazing force for good in the world. Mm. I also want to keep her totally safe. I want to keep her totally safe and naive. I want to keep her complicit. I don't want her to know the world is, I don't want, you know, I want to keep, I don't, I want her to fight the monsters and save the world from the monsters. But I also want to keep her so safe she doesn't even know the monsters exist. It's that kind of, you know, and it would be safer for her if she was complicit and on the side of the monsters because her life would be so much easier. And it's that kind of dealing with an act negotiation from the point of view of the adult caregiver. It, it was also kind of hugely inspired by, well, I've been watching the Lord of the Rings films a lot. And um, now there's that scene in the the film of the two towers mm. sorry of the of um the fellowship 
when they're at, you know when they're at Rivendell mm. and they're all arguing over the ring and you have that wonderful scene where they're all you can see them reflect in the ring and there's flames and the dwarves and elves and humans are all arguing and the world is going to be consumed in flames and then Frodo stands up and says I will take the ring though I do not know the way and Gan- you have Gandalf's face and he's just devastated because he knows that letting Frodo take the ring will mean that Frodo is destroyed and you know it is something that Frodo cannot come back from and he knows everything he knows how much pain Frodo will endure and he will probably die but also of course you know he knows that that's the only way it can be done the world can only be saved by sacrificing Frodo and Frodo is in fact the only one who can do it you can't trust it to you can't give it to any of the others because Frodo's the only one who can achieve it. And that that look of absolute pain on Ian McKellen's face. It does so moment, well, so good. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and I think, as yeah. you know, as parents, we've all... The f- horror of being in that position, the f- absolute fear of, you know, your child saying, you know, I will... I will, is a truly wonderful thing and is a truly noble thing. And, of course, you brought... You, that's what you want your child. You want your child to be the one who will do the great noble thing and be the, the, and good and save the world. But you don't. Yeah. And that, yeah, it really came from that kind of, again, that kind of, those feelings. But it's a much more positive story. It's a much more kind of, yeah, it's a kind of good against evil. There is clearly good. There is clearly evil. And that's, that's, You make a sort of an interesting point because... I've always i i've i've grown up my entire life reading Lord of the Rings, uh, reading um, you know the Sharp series, history books. I like reading history, always being you know very sort of all about the good versus the evil, and sort of you know loving that whole fantasy drive of being the hero and sort of being the good guy, and good always prevailing over evil. But I think. In a, in a certain way, it does keep you sort of isolated. It kind of bubbles you from the reality of what real life is. And that's why I've started, I, I've taken to one sort of like, I like to read history from the other side of the coin. So if I believe something or I've been taught something, I generally read the other thing just to make sure I've got a balanced view on it. But when it comes to sort of like books now, like sort of like Game of Thrones and Joe Abercrombie, um, First Law series and stuff, uh, which is so good at this, where it literally, you do have good versus evil, good doesn't always come out on top and it's sort of that sort of reality that kicks in and it's just like you're not expecting it and it makes me it's sort of like it's just like oh god i want this guy to be awesome um like like uh, i'm assuming you've read the the first law and uh, the first law books uh the trilogy or his other books by joe abercrombie it's four sort of six. I always say a lot of those. I sort of say grimdark is basically the point when fantasy finally has to face up to real life. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, under, I understand that, but it's like it's 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 got you know you can have moments where it's like it's sort of it is you have those heroic moments, but it sort of it, it earths it grounds you in that it's like you know shit does happen and thing and and think bad things do happen to good people and you know the bad guy does sometimes come out on top and that sort of thing i it's 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 it's, it's real life but it's a good it's 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 like a good mix between sort of you have your you have your books that gives you gives you the the hero and gives you that sort of 
strive to high, be high the, fantasy. Yeah, to be the good person and to be the hero and stuff. But then you're you're sort of measured out by these other fantasy books that sort of kind of go, you know what? Like, well, there is heroes, but they don't always end out on top, and it's good to sort of keep instead of just sort of kind of having one set having these both sort of there just to show you they give you a bit of a balance in your life because you if you grow up thinking that everything's going to be good and as we know it's not like that you know it can it can be a bit of a shock and uh see, I never read, i've never seen sharp as remotely the hero i find sharp absolutely terrifying he's always there's there's the stuff in woman of the and i've in the special edition, this this special edition, yeah, which is um, this is a limited edition signed by me, and it's also it's got a special essay in it, which is no available nowhere else. Where I get quite nasty about people like Sharp, I get really stressed because <laughs> that whole you know he's oh, I, I find him absolutely terrifying. He's going on and on about his honour. What and what what like, is it about Sharp that sort of uh, is is his sort of matches his sort of is like... that, that, you know he's just he is a warrior. He goes on and on about his honour. And that sense of kind of like, well, you know, fuck your honour. You know, what do you think? You know, again, you know, women in war, you know, they don't talk about their honour. They talk about doing absolutely anything they can to keep their children alive. It's that, you know, he goes sharp. Sharp really scares me the way he talks about his honour all the time. He talks about, you know, he would rather die than compromise his honour. That's a very, well, Napo- that was a very Napoleonic, like Victorian kind of really, but then, Victorian I mean, sort stop, of. You know, we've got, I wrote a, did a uh, thing a couple of years ago talk, where, the Starks, I don't think the Starks are good. The Starks are, you know, Ned Stark is absolutely terrifying. All he needs to do is it's not p- tell his best friend a really bad thing that will destroy his best friend. And if he just doesn't do that, then nothing that then unfolds will unfold. I know, but you, you've got to... But the- he's so like, my honour, I must. And in fact, it begin. I mean, it begins with that, seen with him right at the beginning he's executing someone yes and he's doing it himself and Mm. you know his honor is that he must he must show justice by killing someone himself to show you know the lannisters are the lannisters they just you know they get someone to do it for them they have an executioner but he kills criminals himself because he has his honor he's he's a fascist he's ned stark is terrifying what about rehabilitation why <laughs> it's just that but it's that kind of and then i mean again that kind of you know so there's there's sort of so then there's um rob stark with his whole you know his honor now says that he must marry this woman you know he's he was on he was on found himself in a moment of weakness having sex with this pretty young woman and now he must marry her and because he marries her he will have to undo this whole incredibly complicated um, allegiance that his mother has negotiated and you know and, and then loads and loads and loads of people die and loads of other people see their farmlands destroyed and their cattle destroyed and their crops stolen and their whole livelihood destroyed I know, but do you, because I he doesn't just say look you know sorry i'm really sorry i'm really sorry i took your virginity and you might and you know at this point i'm not sure whether you might be pregnant or not but you know just like you know just Fuck off! I know, but it's. I think I don't. I don't think that's. I see. I understand where you're coming from. I don't think I agree with you. Oh my own! I do. I don't. I do. Trust me, I do. I don't know if I agree with you simply because I, um. Like this is an example. Me and my brother have been playing a game called Stellaris, and uh, it's like a, a sci-fi sort of kind of galactic conquest game, and they have these like um, 
space whales that have sort of kind of been in my area for for hundreds of, the game spans hundreds of years hundreds of years and i refuse to kill them despite the galactic the galactic um the galactic council basically uh sanctioning me and i was losing like i was losing all kinds of resources and i couldn't do it because I had basically made peace with these things and I wasn't, even it was because it was detrimental to me, it was detrimental to my allies, I couldn't do it because it's an honourable thing because it's like I, could, I couldn't I could do it. Now, I eventually, after like 300 years of the game or whatever, had to because it was completely down and out. Yeah, but I grasped... So you, put, you, you put your civilization for 300 years <laughs> of death... I know. All right. All right. So, but let me get this right. So, if I was to and give, still, it, it's still a prince. It's still a principle. I don't think honor is a bad principle. I understand that it has. It causes a lot of a downfall of a lot of people, and you can see that in Game of Thrones. Um, not so much in Sharp, but you know, you, you can see like you know, honor. Uh, you know, even throughout history and stuff, people being doing honorable things doesn't always end up sort of the right thing and that's why joe abercrombie's books does that quite well it's like there's there's like don luther is 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 an honorable guy but he ends up getting absolutely shafted uh and it's like you know but i don't think it's a it's a bad thing it's maybe not a smart it's not it's not a smart it's not a smart thing it's not a especially it's not a well no i don't think it's an excuse i don't because if you were to for example and I'm seeing if I can try. If you were to be given a ward, um, you know, you somebody or uh, uh, you were given responsibility for somebody, you grew the. I have. I've got three. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> you're, you're given responsibility. So somebody turns up to you, um, and you've been given responsibility. Say you, you foster somebody or something. You're given responsibility for that person, and somebody yeah, turns around to you and says, "Right, well, for the greater good of this community." You need to get rid of that person because they're not from this area, not this, blah, blah. You have to understand that this could cause X, Y, and Z. You're not just going to give them up. You're not going to just give them up. It's not as easy as like, I understand the grander scheme of things. I understand that, you know, if I don't do this, then this X, Y, and Z. But as a human being, as a person who has feelings and has sort of, you know, I, I wouldn't want somebody doing that to me. I want somebody to have my back. You couldn't just you couldn't just do that sort of thing. So I understand yeah, but... Ned. I understand Ned Stark. The sharp thing is just Napoleonic romanticism, isn't it? Really, but then but... Ned Stark. But then you've got to live forever with the knowledge that. See, there's because there is in fact no. There's no good outcome. I mean, you have to live forever with the knowledge that by Would saving like... that one child that you love you have doomed an awful lot of people. It's not actually that simple. It's, I mean, people always say about you know, the, um, the Le Guin story, the, the ones who walked away from, and I can never remember the name of the, name of the city. It's the Le Guin short story where people discover they live in this wonderful paradise city. It's a really be- wonderful utopian city. And then they discover that at the heart of the city is a child being tortured. And the, the city is only the utopia it is because of the ag- continual agony of a child. So the question is, do you walk away or do you stay? And people always say, well, obviously you walk away. But then of course you walk away and you're taking your own family, so your own children. I know, but it's, princi- it's, pr- it's principle, surely? So you're letting- and You're taking them out to somewhere where they are then suffering. You're taking them away from 
a wonderful environment where they can grow up in a very utopian peace in safe, complete safety but and you're taking them away to experience hunger and fear and danger out in the world yeah but it's would actually, you want that on the back of would you want that on the back of suffering though it's like it's like you could it's like this is a really ex- extreme example and everybody goes this way when you're sort of like you're you know you're living in nazi germany and you know you don't know any different because whatever and you've got you've got a job and you've got this that and the other and it's like yeah all this bad shit's happening because of that because of that but you know your family's safe and your family's safe it's like surely there's principles behind these things you can't just go well it's for the greater good of everybody else that this person suffers or do you gotta go do you know what do i have to accept that i can't let another person um suffer as well and sort of just you know fine is means it means the detriment to my family Yeah, so listen, people did stand up for their principles and said no. And you exa- know. exactly, but the thing is, in the greater, if the way what I'm understanding, what you guys are saying is, they could have just sat there and not. Schindler could have just turned around and said, "Well, I, I can have an easier know. life for me what and my family." You, I think the only human answer to say is, is to say, "I don't know." I genuinely don't yeah. know. Yeah. It's, I think that's the only kind of, and I mean, I should talk about Leonard Cohen. There are two different Leonard Cohen songs that really sum this up actually sort of i mean well there's an amazing leonard cohen song he sings called the partisans a song that he does a wonderful song it's a partisan song it's um it's about yeah i think it's about jewish partisans in the second world war and it's you know i've it, it's a song about you know i've lost i've changed my name so often i've lost my wife and children there were three of this this morning there's one of this us this evening but still I go on and it is that, you know, it's that absolute, you know, the only thing you can do is, is fight and you must sacrifice everything because you are fighting against something that is totally evil. You must you must kill the monsters. And if it means loss of everything, if it means losing your everyone that you love, if it means losing, if it means your own death, it is more important because you must kill the monsters. But then at the same time, that kind of, you know, that sense of, well, you know, isn't it better just to care up at home with, with the people you love and you know i know but then all if you ever, says, it, i don't know genuinely i don't think i know i don't think i could actually genuinely say in the end thing is if you the way i see it is if you don't stand up for principle and i and i understand that the principle is very sort of fluid depending on person to person so the whole ned stark thing is there is a bit more he could have probably used a bit more tact and certain you know, there's certain things he could have maybe ignored for the greater good. You know, and there's yeah, like thing. there's there's certain principles I think you you should always adhere to. But you know, you know, when you're those sort of things, I can kind of understand. You know, different. That's very fluid. But I think if you don't stand up for principles and you don't stand up for honourable things, then you wouldn't have society becoming a better place and uh, it would just be well i'm okay and that's all that matters and therefore nothing would get better uh, because you do need suffering to um make something what about my children are okay and that's all that matters yeah but that's well that's it but the thing is if ever if everybody had i understand as a mother you're going to be very and i i you know you know, I'm not, I don't have any kids. <laughs> I don't have any kids, so I don't. You know, I, again, so it's 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 hard for me to sort of kind of grasp that sort of kind of feeling because I don't have them, and I can understand maybe my parents would think, but in my, in my mind, it's like if everybody has the same view that as long as my kids are okay, it doesn't matter. Then 
nothing changes and surely there has to be a there has to be a line you're going you know what there has to be suffering and it's somebody you know and who's the braver person the person who accepts that suffering and moves on and does something about it you know or the person who just accepts the status quo and you know the child in the middle of the in the middle of the city being tortured it's you know for me personally and i i you know i i i I have a really strong view on right and wrong. Uh, as much as I believe the world is very black and white, it's not very black and white, it's very grey. The world's a grey place. But, you know, I have strong feelings about what is right and what is wrong and stuff. And I feel like I've done stupid stuff because on principle, <laughs> just on principle, you know, I've sent emails I shouldn't have sent because in my principle, I was like, I need to send that and I've got in trouble. But it's like, as much as I didn't like getting in trouble, I felt like my principle made me say i had to say that thing because you know it was the right thing to do um so i'm not saying you're wrong or anything i'm just like my opinion is if everybody has the same view that i'm okay my family's okay nothing else matters then nothing gets done and nothing changes We, yes. wouldn't, we wouldn't we wouldn't be here if if people hadn't have hadn't have revolted or hadn't sort of gone through um heartache to sort of make things better and that's just sort of my kind of yeah, my view on but, it no i think the will wheaton rule of just don't be a dick is probably best one <laughs> that's true but, the thing, but that's it that's a good rule but the problem is there are dicks out there and there's a lot of dicks and that's the problem and that's why you have to have because if we lived in a utopian society or we lived in a society that was a lot more um free and um, people were just a bit more cool to each other, then it wouldn't be a massive issue. But we don't, we live in a society where, and this is what, I, you know, I, I've had massive long debates with, um, <laughs> with, I've got some people who are really into this whole set of thing about communes and stuff like this, and everybody should have the, you know, they can do whatever they want and they all get paid the same and all this other stuff. And it's like, yeah, that works if everybody's the same and has their own sort of thing going on. But all it takes is for, for one asshole to sort of not give a shit and not pull his weight and stuff. And then that brings everything down or he, him, you know, the next commune on, they might go, Hey, well, they've decided they're not going to have weapons and they're going to do this. We can take advantage of that. And, there's always somebody who's going to take advantage of that situation. It's throughout history. Communism is a is a massive, um, is a massive sort of show for this. It's like people just taking advantage of the situation, and therefore you have to have a point where principle matters. And there's you know you have to make you have to stand up for it because unfortunately we don't live in an equal society with people cares the same way. They've people care about power, they care about money, and they care about their families, uh, and sometimes all three of them. And unfortunately, that's and, and we come back to just basically best thing to do is don't be a dick. Yeah, that's the best be, thing, but be it doesn't make I, I know, but I understand that, but it's like you, yeah, it's okay saying that, but you know. That's not going to happen. It's, You've where got... the, it's where that runs up together. It's where the, the it's where the kind of the response, where the responsibility and the desire to protect your family or those that you love most comes up against the fact that that means you have to be a dick to others. That's that's where it's really interesting. That's where. Yeah, well, I don't, you can't you can't answer it until you've yeah. been there. Yeah, I'm not saying it would be easy. Really, that's one of the things all my books are about is trying to explore that that yeah. that moment of 
Yeah, how do you do? I, I, how do you deal with that? Protecting family against like against the you know the rest of society. Yeah, well, I'll I'll give you an example of how um, you know I would go against you know I would break law to do something. Like I was thinking, of, I was thinking about this the other day. Like I bring my dog back um, in the boat to Northern Ireland all the time, um, and every single time I get in that boat. My first thought is, because I love that fucking dog, and I was like, if, if it came to it, right, and they said, you're not allowed to go down to the car deck to get, you know, you know, at all when the, the boat's going. And I'm like, if this boat was sinking, they would literally have to drag me off that boat um, before, you know, I would, I would, I would try and get my dog. I would go down with the boat other than sort of try and get off it and stuff i would you know but the thing is that it could be detrimental to other people because i'm thinking about me and i'm thinking about my family my dog and it's just like you know i'm just all i'm thinking about is is he going to be safe and i would i would break my heart uh, if you know i was alive and he wasn't and stuff and i'm you know so i, I grasp i understand the feeling about sort of things you love and care and that sort of like you know all you want to do is keep them safe um but then sometimes, you know, it's just like you have to weigh that up with principle and mm. accepting the greater good in a way, I guess. But I think we're going to be off topic here. But anyway. I don't think we have. I, I, I think it's been really good. I, I, you know, it's good to have that sort of, that sort of uh, to and fro. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Where where can um, readers find your books, and where where will where can readers meet you? Oh, um, you know, readers can find my books. Uh, well, they can find the Empires of Dust in still in most good bookshops. Obviously, you can find stuff online. You can order. So, Woman of the Sword is with a smaller press. It's with perhaps called Luna Press, and which is a wonderful Scottish publisher. You can find from Luna Press's own website, or, I mean, it's available for, online from all the uh, big, from Amazon, Waterstones, Blackwells, blah, um, yeah, and sort of not in the UK, I think it's available through Amazon. Uh, and yeah, so, so yeah, so my book should be, if you sort of go to yeah, the big, web, big book selling websites, I'd rather people didn't use Amazon, but... Yeah. But, but, but at Luna Press, you can get the special edition. At Luna Press, yes, Luna Press, and also um, the Broken Binding. If people are familiar with that, which is a wonderful, wonderful um, ebook store which specialises in fantasy and science fiction and historical Ooh. fiction. Um, yeah, they do. They do specials. There's a special. You can. Uh, there's a waiting list to be on there a member of their specials club where you get some special every week. They do beautiful, they do special editions, they do signed editions, they wrap everything beautifully. You could, in fact, just, if you have friends and family who like fantasy, science fiction, or historical or historical novels, you probably could get all your Christmas and birthday presents there without actually bothering to um, wrap it because it all comes... Oh, nice. The bo- It comes beautifully packaged. They sent me a load of signing sheets a while ago for something and it was so nicely packaged I thought someone sent me a present. <laughs> but yeah, no, they're a wonderful bookshop and they, so they also have the special edition. So the special edition is £30. It's signed and numbered and I've put little gold ink and stuff on the signing sheet and it's got, um, so yeah, it's got the short story Red Glass, which is about a lie in an earlier iteration. So it's about the main character in the book in an earlier iteration. And it's also got this exclusive essay and you can get that or the normal book from in hardback or softback from Luna Press or from 
um, a broken binding and you can get the normal softback or hardback from Luna Press or from Amazon, Waterstones, etc. Uh, yeah, you can get Empress of Dust anywhere. Also, there's a whole like there's a big batch of signed copies of Empress of the Empress of Dust book at Broken Binding as well at the moment. Um, and the new book will be out in September, um, and again should be available in all good bookshops and online from all major retailers. And um, yeah, where I'm going to be, I will be at Chimera in Edinburgh. I'm doing a thing on the Friday night at Chimera, Friday the 2nd of June, I think it is, with uh, Gareth Hanrahan and Ian Waits. And then I will be, where will I be after that? Uh, I'm with FantasyCon in Birmingham. Oh, Birmingham, yes, I should be there. Oh, excellent. And BristolCon in October. And I'm hoping to do, I was supposed to be at Super Relax FantasyCon last week, but I had COVID. So I'm hoping to be back at Super Relax FantasyCon. Yeah, it was, amazing. My, it was supposed to be me, Juliet McKenna and Michael oh. Miller. Me and Juliet McKenna both got COVID. Of from course. FantasyCon. So Michael Miller had <laughs> the stage to himself. I think everyone got COVID after, after EasterCon. Yeah. It just, just one was unfortunate things. ground zero for... Yes. For mini outbreak, so to speak. Yeah, it's just, I think it was just a particularly, I think it was just a very, very fast incubating and quite virulent strain of it. Yeah. But it's just one of those things. I mean, I was saying to people, you know, it, it could have been a lot worse. It could have been a norovirus outbreak. I mean, Ooh, yeah. you know, occasionally, just occasionally, you get a group of people and it just happens that a very particular nasty virus or bacteria just happens to find it perfect you know it's not people are sort of saying oh Easter Con should have done more or something they what could they have done they had 800 people in a hotel there's nothing yeah. and we do know we do you know it could have been a flu it could have been norovirus occasionally you get these catastrophic outbreaks yeah and, yeah, yeah. And up, until, yeah. up until quite recently it was um it would have just been everyone just saying like yeah con crud some fucker brought a cold and we all came with home colds. <laughs> and that would have been all it was. I remember when I used to go to Goth Whitby Gothic weekend, uh, Whitby flu was just, everyone was like, oh. But it was yeah. just, well, what do you expect? We've been partying hard, living off beer and chips for three days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, was, yeah. <laughs> I was at Sci-Fi weekend uh, um, last month and I'm amazed that I didn't come down with anything. I felt a bit rough afterwards because I'm, dancing around and partying and drinking and eat, drinking and eating bad food for three days but i didn't come out about the, the hundreds of people there i didn't come down with anything i just felt yes i just felt rough because lack of sleep lots of dancing crap food but, and i'm hoping to come so yes yeah, so i just want to say, make a sort of public statement saying I think it's totally unfair to anyone to blame Eastercon for anything. It was just, yeah. you know. And also it was a hotel by an airport. There were also people who were at the Ooh. NEC doing a gaming weekend staying there. You know, it's... Oh, insomnia. Insomnia, yeah. So, yeah. yeah so there were people who, yeah, again, another lot of people in a slightly different confined area who were also getting no sleep. I presume they weren't drinking as much as they were computer gaming. They were also living off chips and three hours sleep. I mean, you know, plus there's the airport. I mean, you know... <laughs> Ideal breeding conditions for viruses, unfortunately. Yeah. So yeah, and um, but yeah, I'm also hoping to be at the Humber Science Fiction Group, which uh, in Hull. 
Oh, nice. In the autumn. So, oh, so a very busy time for you. Very busy time, yeah. Well, I've got two books to promote this year. So, yeah. um, and I've just booked my membership for, I just bought my membership for Worldcon Glasgow next year. So. Oh, nice. nice. I'm very much looking forward that to is, it. That is tempting. I've not, not done it yet, but that is very tempting for next year. Be, I think it'd be so good. I know quite a lot of the people who are involved in organising it. And oh, nice. I just think it'd be so good the way they're talking about it and the plans they've got and the stuff they've already done. I think it's just going to be an amazing, I think it'd be a brilliant event. Okay, well, I'll put that in for next year. <laughs> right. And you can find me, all of this stuff, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook. Twitter, at Queen, Queen of Grimdark, and um, Facebook and Instagram, Anna Smith Spark. And I, um, I don't post that much, but I do tend to put information about new books and new short stories and, um, yeah, when I'm, and events I'm going to be at and that sort of stuff. Awesome so, sauce. Brilliant. I pictures of my cats also. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, well, I'm not sure if you want to do it. It's, it's been going on for about an hour and 45. It's, it's completely up to you. We can't just end it now. But we usually end our um, our podcast with... I'm not sure. Did we, we, we wouldn't have done this with you last time because everything messed up. But um, we end our podcast with... A, it's like a, a 20 questions type thing. So you, you choose a, a nerdy franchise uh, and you think of a, you think of a character and then we have to guess who that character is. And we'll all do one. So it can be like Lord of the Rings. It can be Game of Thrones. It can be Marvel. It can be DC. It can be any of your sort of kind of... As long as we have a sort of inkling of what it is. Um, so you're going to think of a franchise... And then you think of a character within that franchise, then we will guess, try and guess who that person is. Um, so have a think. Obviously, nothing too obscure. Don't do Pete. Pete likes doing super, either super easy or super obscure as Pete's MO generally. Um, um, I've got one. If I'll give you sort of an example um, if you want to go for it. Uh, it's middling i'll give you it's a middling middling difficulty i think uh and the franchise okay, is lord, the franchise is lord of the rings i'm definitely screwed <laughs> franchise is lord of the rings um you've got 60 seconds you can ask me whatever questions i'll give you the answers you've got 60 seconds after the 60 seconds you'll have one more question and then you've got to guess who it is you can obviously guess who it is throughout the 60 seconds but uh we'll start here so uh, Lord of the Rings, 60 seconds, go. Are they in the films? They are in the films. Are they male or female? Um, male. Are they on the side of good? They are on the side of good. Okay, are they in all three films? Uh, yes. Are they Boromir? Is this? Are you Boromir? I am not. I am not Boromir, right. but that, that's good. I'm not Boromir. <laughs> you have a character okay. Boromir. I love Boromir, but yeah. Right. Are they a human? They're not human. Are they elf? No, they're not elf. Are they dwarf? Nope. Okay. Are they hobbit? Nope. Are they one of the wizard things? <laughs> one of the one of the wizard things, Pete. One of the wizard things. I don't do Lord of the Rings. Okay, no, they're not one of the wizard Are things. They one of the horses. They're not one of the horses. It's not. <laughs> it's not Shadowfax. No. So you got one more. You got one more. Get. You got one more question, and then a guess. So you've named every other creature. You haven't named this single creature. Who are really pivotal in Are Lord of the, the Rings? 
No, they're not nymphs. <laughs> you got one. Are quest. they an eagle? They are. are eagle? They are an eagle. Edge of the eagle. Edge of the eagle. Whose name I cannot remember. It is going to be the main eagle from Lord of the Rings, whose name is Gwahir. Eddie the Eagle. Yeah, yeah Eddie the Eagle. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Squahir. Um, Yeah, the Lord That's of the Eagles. That's not middling, dude. That is middling. The Eagles are like pivotal. There's so much argument about the Eagles. Come on. Come on. That is middling. It's not obscure because they're like there. They're in all the films. Um, even if fleetingly, and um, where are, not, what do they do in the two towers? Where are they in the two towers? Uh, where are they? <laughs> are they in the two towers? I'm trying to think. It's been so long since I've seen it. <laughs> no, I've so they, they get, but they get, they get Gandalf. Uh, they sort of they get Gandalf yeah, off Orth- from Orthanc. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. yeah, yeah, and the scene, the second one. Because I, I, I think there's like a there's like a flashback, isn't there, from where he's been when obviously they meet Gandalf the White. That's oh, him fighting the Balrog. I know it's a Balrog, but it's just. I'm pretty I'm just... certain the Eagle is not involved in that bit. Yeah. Well, they're in the films. She said, "Are they in the films?" And I said, "Yes." I said, "Maybe." But even, even so, I don't think it would matter. The two or three of them. I, I'll have to check that now. See if they're in the in the second film. As soon as you, I'm going to have to watch them again now. I haven't seen him in oh, so dear, long. What a shame. Yeah. Anyway, so we've got one. I've, I've got one. Okay, Star Wars. Okay, Star Wars, 60 seconds. Go. Uh, original trilogy. No. Uh, prequel trilogy. No. Um, sequel trilogy. Yes. Um, are they a part of the First Order? Yes. Are they, um, are they male? Yes. Male and part of First Order. Are they, is it, it's not, uh, it's not Snoke, is it? Nope. Yeah, it's not Snoke. Um, are they, oh, uh, are they, do they have Force powers? No. Are they that ginger bloke that has an argument with Hux. Kylo Ren? Is it Hux? Is it, is it... it is indeed Hux, yes. <laughs> is it Hux? <laughs> the ginger bloke. <laughs> we talked about toxic masculinity and really thought, right, sequel trilogy. I've seen that film once. Hux. And yeah. I just had a vague memory of someone with red hair. Yeah. Um, Little Hux. Yeah, yeah. played have, by... Have a tantrum. Um, oh, what's Gleason? Gleason, one of the... It's, yeah. It's the son, yeah. Right, it's your turn, Diana. Okay, your, your franchise? Um, the franchise is She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. Ooh, She-Ra! Wow, okay, She-Ra. Right, She-Ra. Okay, what was this for 30 years? Go no, on. not that, the, the, the cartoons, the new cartoon, the, um, the no, ah. no, ah. <laughs> ah. Cartoon. ah okay. The new cartoon. Okay. Um, have I, either of you two sorry. seen this? I have not seen sorry, the new, no. I have not oh, seen okay. the new cartoon. <laughs> the new cartoon. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. The franchise is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. No, Buff, not Buff. that for fifteen years, but never mind. We'll go for it. Buffy. Um, sixty seconds. Go. Are they a vampire? No. Okay. Um, are they part of the um, Scooby Gang? No. Are they in all seven seasons? No. 
Okay. Um, are they male? No. Yeah, well, are they female? Yes. And they are human? Yes. Right, okay. Um, are they related to Buffy? No. Right. Are they friends with Buffy? Yes. Right. It's not well. Uh, it's, not Will- it's not Willow, is it? No, Willow's in the Scooby Gang. Okay, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Keep up, Matt. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm going to tell you something after this, but uh, yeah. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> okay. Um. Right. They're not in all all seasons, are they? No. Okay. Um. Okay, I'm trying to think it up. Are they supernatural? No. Okay. Okay, last one One more question. I don't have so, anything because, uh, yeah. So human, female, um, were they in at the start or yeah. were they in? At, okay. At the start, w- without, not supernatural, not part of the Scooby gang. Did they go to the school? Yes. Were they one of the students? Yes. Belgians. No, that's not the name. That's just me, my brain going blank at this point. Um, sorry, I'm going to have to... No, my mind's going blank, unfortunately. Cordelia. Cordelia. She was part of the Scooby Gang. She's not part of the Scooby Gang. She was. Do you know, she's not part of the Scooby Gang. She's, she is. No, she's not. She I is. have never seen an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer in my life. Get out. <laughs> or, right, it just seems to be a Joss Whedon thing, because I've never seen, um, I've never seen a Serenity. Um, I haven't seen Serenity or Firefly. Or Firefly, yeah. I've never seen it. Everyone's like, oh, that's actually. Yeah, I don't see that. I've seen, we watch, I'm now on my, we're now on our second viewing of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, wow. Okay. We've just, oh, wow. Yeah, we reached the end of, my daughter reached the end of Series 7, and... I've I've seen this the musical episode four times with her now, and then we just even more times than I've seen the um, princess prom episode of She Ra and the Princess of Power. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we're now we're now back watching on series one again of Buffy. Uh, Andrew McLean Finney says Cordial, uh, Cordelia sorry is the Angel Gang, not the Scooby Gang. You go, Pete. Andy. Shut up. <laughs> I say that because Andy is a very good friend of mine from yeah. university. I do know Mr. Finney very well. He's just wrong in this matter. He, she is part of the Scooby gang. <laughs> well, he's got a, there's a sticky out tongue emoji there that begs to differ, Pete. <laughs> I've got another emoji for you, Andy. <coughs> okay. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. I feel like I could sit here and talk to you about history and stuff for a very, very long time, but I think we'd, we'd be, probably be here for a very long time. We could obviously argue about Ned and Rob Stark. Oh, and we could. Our, which we gives could. you a resolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, would, that would be good. But, you know, if he just, if he just told her, look, I'm really sorry I shout you, and as an upper-class woman, you know, clearly <laughs> your life is over now and you're just going to have to go and join in on But look, you know, I'm sorry, I've got to marry this other woman who I have no interest in. I'd much rather you marry you, but I'm sorry, then... None of that would have happened, and those people would still be alive. And he might have been king, and yeah, and it would have, could have, should have, you know. Yes. <laughs> if, he just, if he just kept in his pants. If he had just kept in his pants, yes. But if after he'd taken it out of his pants, if he'd just been a bastard to her, then 
all those loads of people might not have died. Yeah, I tell you what, but I, I I remember reading that, reading the book, um, and I was like Rob Stark. I was like, oh, I freaking love Rob Stark. He's such a cool character. And it was just like I was reading the book and just going, oh, amazing. And my dad and my sister, my dad and my sister had read it before me. And I just remember being on holiday, and this was before the series had come out. So, like, you know, I'm reading these, you know, pre pre series, and um, I'm sitting there on the sun, the sun uh, lounger with the shade because I'm Irish and can't do sun. And I'm sitting there reading this book, and all I remember is my mum, sorry, my dad and my sister looking at me intently because I was at the point they knew where I was, and I sort of like, and it sort of got to the red wedding, and I'm like one page. And I was like, oh, oh, and then next page, and then they could just see me, my 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 emotions draining from me, and literally getting to the point where I just picked up the book and went, "Fuck this book! I'm not doing this anymore. I can't, I can't believe this. Can't do it." And then at the end, I remember at the end of the holidays, I read five of them in like the space of like two weeks. I literally just hammered them every day, and. uh <laughs> when Jon Snow because at the end of the last book Jon Snow gets his neck gets his throat cut and that's pretty you know bar uh, Kevin Lannister um, being assassinated by Varys, uh in the book that's sort of kind of it and I just remember Jon Snow being basically in my mind killed because I had you know the, the series and stuff and literally just throwing the book in the bin temporarily just going i i'm not dealing with this this shit anymore <laughs> killing everybody i love in this in these bloody books <laughs> it's weird. I, I i took it out eventually but i was just i couldn't believe it it took me a month to finish the last chapter because i was so pissed off with the whole thing <laughs> I, was, I can't believe it <laughs> <sighs> anyway 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 it's been an absolute pleasure thank you very much Anna. Thank you. Um, it's been great fun big great fun and thankfully no technical problems so uh it yeah okay. i'll give we have a full a full podcast this time right well, no, actually i kicked the i kicked the um the lead for my lamp my table lamp and at the point i kicked the lead for my table lamp that was the point at which me and then peter went black there cannot possibly be any connection, but there was. But thank you very much uh, for tonight. I've been Matt Geary. With me has been Peter A. Allison. Good night, everyone. And Anna Smith-Spark. Bye.